Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Sarah from New Society Publishers. At New Society, we are committed to ensuring that the health and diversity of the environment is conserved for the benefit of future generations. Find out more about how we put people and planet first at newsociety.com or on any of your favorite social media channels. All right, everybody. Before I get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new project that I've just launched. Now, after years of highlighting and promoting the knowledge, wisdom, and projects of innovators and leaders in regenerative living through this podcast, I've realized that this audio format can only ever reach so many people. There are so many others out there who engage more with other forms of learning. That's why I've started the Abundant Edge YouTube channel. Now that I'm back on the road and visiting regenerative and sustainable projects in my travels, I'll be profiling the people and organizations that are making a real impact on their environments and their communities. My goal is to show as many people as I can reach that you don't have to have a lot of money, access to a ton of resources, or have a fancy education under your belt to make a real difference in this world and create change. Now my first mini documentary highlights the unbelievable achievements of a small community called Kishaya in the highlands of Guatemala. More than 30 years ago, the land where the village is located was owned by a plantation owner who kept the ecosystem under monoculture cultivation and exploited the local people who worked for slave wages on the farm. After the owner defaulted on his loans, the bank repossessed the land and offered it back to the local workers as payment for the wages owed to them. The villagers then redistributed their terrain among the original 80 families who took back control of the plantation and divided it equally between themselves so they might care for it and create a better life for their families. Now, decades later, the descendants of these pioneers have helped to transform the land into a profound abundance which you'll see in the documentary. Now, if you want to see the rest, you'll have to check it out for yourself. You can find it really easily just by typing in Abundant Edge into the YouTube search bar. And be sure to keep an eye out for more short films highlighting the projects that I visit as I travel through Mexico and beyond. I'll also be releasing tutorials on everything from design theory to building and gardening techniques in the upcoming months. I really hope that this will become a resource that, like the podcast, helps to inspire you to live your highest potential by living regeneratively. Alright, now continuing this month's focus on fixing the food system... I wanted to go back to basics and discuss the practicalities and challenges of growing your own food, especially with just a modest sized yard. So I reached out to Crystal Stevens, who's an author, an artist and art teacher, a folk herbalist and a regenerative farmer and permaculturalist. She's also the author of two award winning books, Grow, Create, Inspire and Worms at Work. And now she's also releasing a new book with New Society Publishers early next year called Your Edible Yard. So in this interview, I spoke with Crystal about her learning experiences in growing her own food in a few different environments, and she also goes in depth about the practicalities of time investment, tools and equipment, and maintenance and planting schedules. We discuss how realistic it is for someone working full-time and with only a small yard to produce a meaningful amount of their own food, and we also share some stories of the unexpected joys that make gardening much more of a pleasure than extra work. But before I ramble on too much, I'll turn things over now to Crystal. Hey, Crystal, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. How are you doing? 
Great. Thank you, Oliver. It's a true honor to be here. Hey, the pleasure's all mine. And I have a ton of questions that I'd love to ask you about how you've gotten started and how you've progressed with growing your own food. So what do you say we just jump right in? That sounds wonderful. All right. So could you tell our listeners first a little bit about your personal background and how you got started growing your own food? Sure. So my mother grew irises growing up. Uh, I was born in Colorado, then we moved in California, and uh, we were there for a while, then we moved to St. Louis. My parents were from there, and she had wonderful heirloom irises from my great-grandmother's garden. And so they're now fifth-generation iris flowers that we've dug up and transplanted at every location we've ever lived in. So that's irises uh, are very dear to my heart, and I even named my daughter Iris. So, so, <laughs> so that's a little bit about um, my first experience with gardening. Uh, for about oh, 15 or so years, uh, give or take, I think I started gardening when I was um, about 16 years old, and I just really fell in love with the farm-to-table process. My entire career has been in gardening and farming and a holistic health. Hey, that's a wonderful story. It sounds like you have a real heart connection with gardening going all the way back to your childhood. But now let's focus a little bit on gardening for the purpose of growing food. Now, obviously growing food is a much more involved process than just putting seeds in the ground and watering them until you have a harvest. So could you explain some of the essentials but maybe often overlooked aspects of growing your own edible garden? Absolutely. So uh, time is always a huge factor. You know, there's so much involved in growing food, Uh, really the prepping, the planning, the planting, the weeding, the watering, weeding, watering, repeat, uh, and then the harvest, of course, and what to do with all the abundance. Uh, But in my opinion, and from what I've experienced over the course of the last decade and a half, prepping the ground well the first time by bringing in uh, new, uh, f- you know, uh, soil that's free of weed seeds helps tremendously. And as earth stewards, I think, um, and in the permaculture community, I think that we could all agree that building soil is a key component of regenerative lifestyle. And uh, based on the fact that it takes 500 years for a few centimeters of topsoil to form, Um, over time, I think it's important that we all do our part to build healthy soils initially. So, you know, adding that soil organic matter and biomass to our beds initially and preventing the weeds from germinating uh, by way of occultation or sheet mulching or just weed suppression in general, I think that really helps to save a lot of that time. So um, methods of building the soil, you know, are adding new soil without uh, weed seeds, sheet mulching, again, adding that organic biomass, uh, doing a lot of compost and vermicomposting. And then I like to create chip mulch beds um, as well that build healthy soil over time. And then of course, uh, cover cropping can help amend the soil in city lots. And, And especially in urban environments, bringing in new soil is almost crucial because there's a lot of toxins in urban soils and a lot of lead and other contaminants that, and we don't really know the history of of those particular urban lots uh, going back a hundred years. So it's important to bring in new soil, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Now, I know you do a lot of other methods for building soil, including composting, and you even wrote a book on vermicomposting. 
how much work let's say time wise do you put into those soil building methods and what have you found yield the best results sure so cover crops can be achieved even in a prairie setting by simply mowing down those grasses using a broad fork to loosen the soil and then scattering cover crops and i know there's multiple platforms on growing cover crops and there's multi-species cover crops which are really important for building healthy soil and adding that organic uh, biomass uh, but it's really not as uh, intimidating and as, uh, as a lot of people think unless you're going big scale with it like tons of acres so uh, starting small in a say an edible landscape uh, starting in the fall by using a broad fork just to break up the soil and scattering uh, just um, you know, uh, scattering the seeds right directly into those soil pockets are really helpful to build that healthy soil and create a network of biopores for microbes and other uh, living organ microorganisms to thrive in. Creating those ecosystems are really crucial. All right, so let's switch gears for just a second and talk about the types of crops that you produce in your own garden. Do you focus mainly on annual production or perennials and trees as well? Uh, so it's a little unique where we are. Uh, we're renting 10 acres in Godfrey, Illinois, along the bluffs of the Mississippi River. And we have uh, 10 acres that uh, is mostly wooded. We have some open area as well. And so for us, uh, since we're renting, we're not investing a lot of money in uh, fruit trees at the moment, but we are stewarding areas where, for example, uh, persimmon saplings kept coming up in an area where we were mowing the grass. Uh, we have to keep the grass mowed because of our landlord specific areas of the landscape. But uh, my husband noticed that the persimmon saplings kept coming up. And so we decided to just create a persimmon grove and to mow around those saplings and then we added sheet mulch and started integrating polyculture plantings uh, so we put in some perennials and nitrogen fixers and dynamic accumulators and allium family plants and so now it's a little uh, wonderful persimmon grove that has multi-species in it and it's really beautiful um, but for our edible landscapes we do a nice combination of perennials annuals, medicinals, culinary herbs. Uh, so it's a, you know, we're creating a polyculture in the front of our house, on the side of our house, and then in our small scale diversified vegetable patch uh, where we're taking our, uh, you know, produce to farmer's market. So I would say polycultures all the way. And I'm really a fan of perennials, uh, though, you know, because we don't own the land, it's, it's gonna be hard to say goodbye to these perennials if we have to leave. So I'm trying to do perennials that we can uh, bring divisions with us when we leave. So that's a really important component to our specific situation. Yeah, that's totally understandable. Now let's, let's focus a little bit on the garden that you have at home, because I think that's going to be more common to the context that a lot of our listeners are coming from. So how realistic do you think it is for someone with, say, a full-time job away from the home to grow a significant portion of their own food? Sure, so uh, we were uh, commuting to work for two years. Uh, we drove an hour plus uh, each way every day, and we still were able to, and we were working on a farm, 
in Ferguson, but we are still able to grow a lot of our own food on our own site as well. So we got a nice farm share from the farm we were growing at, and we also had a really abundant harvest, even with very little work, because the last thing you want to do after farming all day is come home and farm. So we were able to get by with, um, you know, just spending some weekend hours and maybe an hour after work each day uh, focusing on, on some of the projects. And a lot of it was harvesting. But I think it's very and realistic. With, yeah, exactly. So within that realistic time frame and the constraints of your jobs, what portion of your food came directly out of your garden? So I would say on average, you know, um, we grow at least 70% of our own food. Uh, you know, that doesn't include uh, dairy or meats. Um, I'm mostly vegan, but my family eats meat and, uh, you know, drinks, they drink dairy products as well. So for me, I could live in the garden and, and get all of my nutrients from there, aside from coffee and chocolate. <laughs> uh, but for my family, it's a little more challenging. So we were able to put up a lot of our food for the winter, which was really important when we weren't receiving fresh produce over the winter. So I do a lot of canning and preserving. So I would say over the course of the time that we've been farming, uh, we've been able to grow 90% of our own food um, and then rely on neighboring farms that offer pastured meats and, uh, you know, buying milk from a local source and that uh, things of that nature. Though we still try to shop at grocery stores to meet our other needs. Um, so I would say that it's doable. Um, it depends on how much land you have, how big your backyard is. You know, if it's someone in an apartment building just growing on their balcony, I don't think that they can meet much of their food needs. But if it's someone with a nice big backyard, uh, it's very doable with just, you know, maybe five to 10 hours per week dedicated to weed suppression and sheep mulching and maintaining their crops. I think it's very realistic. Fantastic. So let's talk then about how much food someone could potentially produce on, let's say, common spaces that people in urban or suburban environments are likely to have access to. So what do you think the food producing potential of, say, a tenth of an acre or maybe even just a small patch of a yard would be able to, to produce? Sure. So um, as long as their diet is mostly fruits and vegetables, I think that you can do at least 90% uh, of your food um, in terms of bulk amount of vegetables and fruits that you could not only eat fresh, but also put up for the winter. Um, you know, that might be unrealistic for uh, people who have other dietary needs, uh, but for people who focus mostly on fruits and vegetables, I think it's, it's very realistic to do that. Um, now, integrating chickens and other livestock is a way, like all of the polyculture farms and people integrating livestock into their vegetable production operations and doing um, lots of transitioning and crop rotations and rotating their pasture in their cover crop areas. That's more of a win-win a for those looking to diversify their diet. Yeah, for sure. And it does kind of require an interest in some of those other enterprises because, like you said, if you have dietary restrictions and don't eat animal products, that might not be of interest. But I've definitely found from my own experience farming that 
bringing in other species, even if you're not eating their products, can cut down on the amount of work, especially soil building that you do in the case of chickens or manure from other animals. But obviously that, you know, we have to factor that in with the restrictions that you might have where you live, especially in an urban environment. Most definitely. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, in the urban setting, uh, I know a lot of people who meet um, a great percentage of their food needs. And I might be a little unrealistic when I say 90%, but if you look at uh, individuals like Rob Greenfield, who is doing remarkable work right now, he's uh, committed one full year to foraging or growing all of his own foods. And yes, he has his struggles and he, he uh, makes sure to be very transparent about the struggles that comes along with it, but he's doing it. And so it can be done. Uh, meeting 100% of your food needs on your own can be done with sacrifice, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I agree. I really like his work as well. Um, I've been following his videos and I'll try and uh, put a link in the show notes to one of his videos that outlines his project and how he's getting along. It's very eye-opening. And like you said, it's certainly it's not for everybody and it it's pretty much a full-time job in his case. But the insights that you gain from that and um, kind of figuring out how many of the things he's doing would be realistic for your context, I find really inspiring as well. So as far as time invested, if we just want to like break it down by numbers or make it kind of efficient for someone to get started. For calories harvested, what is your best food crop that you've invested in as far as yield and time invested? Sure, so I say the perennials certainly um, are the leaders on that front. You know, you buy perennial plants uh, and a lot of them, you know, send out runners such as strawberries and provide a really abundant harvest. Now, while their harvest window might be small, um, you can get ever-bearing varieties of strawberries that fruit multiple times per year. And the abundance is so prolific that you can put up a lot of those strawberries in freezer in the freezer for later use or can and preserve them. So um, one of my favorites is strawberries, of course. Um, you know, over the last um, almost decade, I've been studying a lot of permaculture plants, and one of our dear friends, Matt Liebon, does a lot of um, the really wonderful permaculture darling plants, as he calls them, and has introduced me to a variety of species, uh, such as the gumi berry, which is a nitrogen-fixing perennial fruiting shrub. It's related to the autumn olive, but it's a non-invasive variety, and it, I mean, there's thousands of these little gumi berries on one shrub, and they're just about to set fruit uh, here in the next couple of weeks. Um, but they will be very prolific for a long time, and you can really harvest them over and over. And uh, another favorite is the June berry. It's the amelanter or service berry, and luckily we have a native variety of that here. Uh, things like uh, June berries are really prolific. They're disease and pest resistant. They are adapted to this climate and they provide an abundant harvest. It's a wonderful alternative to blueberries, which are very prone to disease and pests. And they require a very particular, uh, you know, acidic soil. So getting varieties that are not only acclimated to your zone, but our disease and pest resistant is really crucial. Um, some other varieties that we love are Nanking cherries, which provide an abundant yield. Um, I'm a huge fan of 
all of the medicinal herbs. Um, as an herbalist, I make my own tinctures and herbal salves and oxymils and a variety of medicinal uh, applications. And so I always integrate medicinals into my polycultures. Um, of course, the perennial culinary herbs, which are also highly medicinal. There's so many uses from chimichurris to pestos. You can do so much with the culinary herbs. Um, Matt Liban also turned us on to the Turkish brocket or Turkish rocket broccoli, which is a perennial broccoli. And so really, uh, and we'd had been growing Sylveta arugula, but not necessarily as a perennial before. And so it, trying to find a lot of the perennial fruit producing shrubs, but also the perennial uh, vegetables is really crucial to having an, an abundant harvest. I really love that you focus on those recommendations because that's usually one of the first things that I help to research for when I have clients who are looking to grow their own food as well. And that's to figure out which edible perennials, first of all, are native and grow really well in that context. And then just seeing what kind of variety that you can you can sort of explore because uh, I found that they do really well along the edge space where, you know, People often don't focus on tilling or soil preparation nearly as much, and they kind of stay in the center for their annual production. But, you know, because they need so much less maintenance, and though it may take a little while for them to mature and actually start fruiting or start producing, once they do, like you said, if you selected your varieties right, if they're hardened for your climate and your context, you barely have to do much to them after that. It, it, almost it's, it's just a matter of keeping them under control and keeping them from taking over other spaces. Totally. Um, some other varieties that I really enjoy are elderberries. And we get our elderberry starts uh, as cuttings, stem cuttings from River Hills Harvest. And they have a nice array of really nutrient-rich uh, elderberry varieties. Elderberries are so rich in antioxidants and vitamins and minerals and they're super medicinal and you can make elderberry syrup. So I, I really appreciate all of the fruits with that medicinal component such as aronia berry uh, which is a very amazing antioxidant fruit. Um, I really love mulberry trees and so we do a lot of foraging locally for mulberries as well and it's just about to be mulberry season coming up in a few weeks. They're starting to ripen. Uh, the Asian pear is a really wonderful, prolific, disease and pest resistant tree that grows really well uh, here, as well as the red haven peach and the liberty apple. So those are just a few of the fruit trees. And then of course, pawpaws and persimmons are native to this region and pawpaws are the largest fruit indigenous to North America. So there's a lot of folks in this area who are propagating pawpaws and growing and cross-pollinating them as well. Yeah, when you get into it, there's such a cool variety and to say nothing about the nutrition and the flavors, I mean, there's so much to appreciate and, and to rediscover about perennials. It's strange to me how they've kind of fallen out of uh, favor in industrial agriculture over the last you know handful of decades but it's fantastic to see them coming back in a really big way especially in permaculture and home grower communities 
Yes. Uh, while I do love the perennials, we also integrate a lot of annuals that are uh, prolific producers like sugar snap peas and green beans. We've, we're growing about 10 different varieties of green beans uh, from Baker Creek heirloom seeds this year. And as well as I love the peppers, you know, it's if I could find perennial peppers, that would be really wonderful. <laughs> uh, peppers are some of the easiest and most delicious. Uh, I've in a food as medicine presentation I gave, so many people were surprised at the fact that peppers have more vitamin C than oranges. So, you know, just trying to figure out the types of vegetables that you can use to supplement as very nutritious components to your diet are, are also really important. And of course, we love oh, yeah. tomatoes and, you know, rainbow chard looks beautiful in a landscape. Uh, we Some things that we're really excited about this year, I have never tried huckleberries or wonderberries, and I ordered the seed from Baker Creek, and they're doing really well. I have yet to experience the fruit of either, but we, we shall see. That's always something to look forward to. And I mean, man, don't get me started on chilies right now. I'm traveling through southern Mexico at the moment, and the variety of chilies, both fresh and dried, that you find in the markets here and the way that it's integrated into the native cuisine is just Oh, man, you have to be here to experience it. But before we get too carried away with those, let's switch uh, gears for a second here and talk about how to extend the uh, the growing season or the harvest season for as long as possible. Now, I know you live in an area with a long winter, and that's how I grew up as well, though I've moved around the world a lot. So let's talk about which of the crops that you grow store best over the winter and in the off seasons. Like how much uh, difference does planning ahead and deciding in advance kind of what you'll be planning the seasons to come make as far as a difference of the food that you'll be harvesting throughout those seasons? Sure. So uh, we're very much a fan of crop planning in the fall for the next growing season. And I like to extend that crop planning throughout the winter uh, when the fields are dormant. Uh, but yeah, that we take that into consideration. We definitely look at the first and last frost dates to make sure that these varieties are going to push through. Uh, kale has always been a superstar in terms of season extension. It just naturally uh, does really well in cold climates. Um, even through, we've had kale go throughout December and then return again in the after the spring thaw. Uh, broccoli has with, withstood many of frosts as well. Um, in terms of storage crops, we focus a lot on winter storage carrots and butternut squash. Um, butternut squash is a really, it thrives really well in this environment and a butternut squash can last up to six months in my experience um, if stored properly. So we focus a lot of, on those particular annuals as season extension. And then we do a lot of canning and freezing and preserving in order to have nutrient-rich produce throughout the winter months. Nice. So could you walk me through an example of how you plan your own garden? You've got a process at this point. Uh, so let's, let's go through from the beginning until when you start planting. Sure. So, um, you know... Obviously, in any new situation of growing food, it's good to observe the site. Uh, is there a slope? How much sun or how many hours of sunlight per day does your site receive? Uh, what type of soil do you have? Is it a nice mixture of sand, silt, and clay? So there's many components in the observation realm 
to consider uh, how water moves across your terrain. Uh, do you even have access to water? Because that is a very important factor here in the Midwest. While we get tons of spring rain, uh, there tends to be sometimes upwards of a two-month drought. And so having access to water is very important. Uh, even better is uh, collecting your own rainwater and having irrigation or soaker hoses set up through your rainwater collection system. And so, um, you know, we like to focus on the varieties we love to eat or that we know will do well at the farmer's market. So we usually start with discussing what didn't go well the previous year, uh, what had disease issues or pest issues, and we try to either omit that from our plan or find disease and pest resistant varieties of those crops. And they're always coming up with new ones. Plant breeders are really amazing in terms of creating new varieties that are disease and pest resistant. And so we do like a, a brainstorm session about what we want to grow and, and what we should grow more of or less of. Uh, you know, you can can never have too many rainbow carrots, but there is such a thing as too much kohlrabi or, <laughs> you know, too many sure. radishes, uh, too many turnips, you know, but never enough cherry tomatoes, uh, never enough berries. So really focusing more and more on the things that people actually love to eat and buy at the farmer's market is uh, one of the things that we consider. So we look at the seed catalogs and pick out any new varieties that we want to try. We have our crop plan all laid out in terms of crop ro um, crop rotation and where we're going to plant things, uh, followed by cover crops. Um, and we have, you know, at Earth Dance Organic Farm School, uh, where my husband was farm manager, they had a very detailed uh, crop plan that focused a lot on bed per square feet and what is the financial yield and the actual poundage per bed square foot. So they had it mapped out down to a science almost, and it was really um, amazing to witness that part of farming. Um, I'm more of an organic person myself. I like to plant the seeds and, you know, <laughs> maintain the plants and do the harvesting. I'm not really a math person. And so for me, that, that sort of really detailed crop planning sometimes takes the magic out of it for me. So <laughs> I like to just do um, a lot of trials and to document the process through photojournalism and write articles throughout the season of, of what's growing good and you know what's prolific and new perennials that we're trying out. Um, and then you know we do our soil building. We make sure that we're adding compost and then we do our planting or transplanting, of course, on the things that uh, require a fine tilth bed. We spend more time getting that soil really prepared and we uh, make our raised beds, permanent raised beds. Then we do occultation, which is the tarping. We use old billboards. And after four to six weeks, we take those off and it's ready to transplant. Then we transplant or sow our seeds and then sheet mulch the pathways uh, to prevent weeds from coming up. And then we always apply a heavy mulch layer or usually leaf mulch or a combination of compost and leaf mulch around our transplants. And then of course on the seed sown beds, we really have to focus on hula hoeing and uh, hand weeding. And then there's always irrigation. So we do either drip tape or hand watering or sprinklers. 
Yeah, I really like what you mentioned back there about the two different ways of sort of managing a garden. And I love that you, you know, sort of voice your preference for doing things in more of an organic way that kind of goes with the flow. You plant things, see what happens and juxtapose that with like, you know, a very rigid uh, planting schedule where everything is laid out all the way down to the day and the rotations and things are scheduled because I personally kind of fall in between that. I love the discovery that comes from just trying things out and see what happens, especially with varieties. And when I get to new places where I'm not uh, as sure of, you know, the growing season or the fluctuations in the seasons. But I also have found, too, that after a little while, there are certain things that if you can systematize them, it really does make it a lot easier. But I think there's such an opportunity for people to add their own personalities, their hearts, their artistry into their garden. And I've always seen that start to come out and flourish once people kind of get bit by the bug of the potential of growing your own food and interacting with the land and the natural systems that come through it. So like everybody has their different expression of how they end up gardening. Sure. And uh, as you mentioned, working with nature rather than against it on a lot of the methodical garden plans, uh, you know, the, the one thing that's not factored in is a heavy rainfall that lasts for seven days or a drought that could significantly set back your harvest dates or planting dates. So really going with the nature's flow and understanding that, you know, we are not in control of this garden ultimately, uh, that we have to sort of put our hands up at times. And, you know, we really got that experience lesson so hard when we were um, CSA farmers. So my husband and I for seven years managed La Vista CSA farm where we had 250 members who would pick up weekly produce and we were on seven acres and it was mostly mechanical cultivation and mechanical forms of planting like tractors and uh, we were on a tillage-based system and using a lot of implementation but we were trying to integrate cover cropping and uh, building healthy soils while we were doing that. So it was sort of a trial by fire because we started as backyard gardeners who wanted to build healthy soil. And one of our gardening mentors, uh, Jim Almond in his 90s, was out there in the Salem Community Garden when my husband first started farming together. And he would um, always tell everyone that came into the garden, you don't have good garden soil unless you can stick your hand down into your soil and the level reaches your elbow. So <laughs> I don't know anyone who has garden soil quite like that, except for Jim Ullman. Um, yeah, that's intense. <laughs> right. Uh, but the, as the CSA farmers, it was a whole different uh, level of pressure because you had shareholders that were expecting a specific poundage of vegetables each week, and nature had its own course that would oftentimes catch us off guard or uh, things that we couldn't prepare prepare for like a heavy windstorm or hail or uh, you know 60 mile an hour winds or (laughs) rain that lasted you know 12 days and heavy heavy rains Um, so really um, being CSA farmers was not for us Uh, we loved it while it lasted but we realized that we want we the pressure of giving people the things that they wanted um, and having them complain when they didn't get tomatoes and instead got kohlrabi. Well, it was just the nature of the farming at that point. 
And then we went from there to Earth Dance Organic Farm School, where they did everything in a no-till way, which is really close to our hearts. They really focused on soil health, and it was miraculous. It's a 14-acre historic farm in the heart of Ferguson. And so we were doing everything organically. It was certified organic, and we were focusing on soil health as the number one priority. So that really spoke to us uh, more, and they didn't have a CSA, which was nice. So we, uh, at that point, just sold to chefs and farmers markets. And so my husband and I, um, after just realizing that we didn't want to go back to tillage-based systems, but we really loved, uh, you know, kind of being on our own time schedule, we were commuting an hour plus each way daily, and our kids went from roaming the fields and uh, being with us all day at the farm to being stuck in daycare for about eight to nine hours a day. So at that point, we decided to branch out and we started our own business called Flourish, which we are focusing on a farm. It's a micro farm, a plant nursery, which we focus a lot of on the perennial uh, permaculture darlings and a lot of annuals and vegetable heirlooms as well. And we also do education and design and I have a line of herbal products through a small apothecary. So at this point in our lives, we're really excited to bring all of that knowledge and wisdom and our, you know, 10 plus years of Resilient Living Workshop series to the education front. And a part of that is also teaching permaculture design courses. And so that's a really exciting, we're in a transition point. We have been for the last six months and it's just Super exciting to, to just be able to plant whatever we want and figure it out from there. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Like I personally am in a transition period of my own, having just left the farm business from Guatemala, traveling through Mexico and trying to find out where I can apply my skills and experience at this point. And I think you'll agree that these transition periods, um, aside from being a little bit scary and sometimes overwhelming, offer if you know you can calm down and uh, enjoy it for a moment, the possibility of exploring all sorts of things that the confines of previous jobs or the demands of previous lifestyles didn't give you. And oftentimes the takeaways from this have given me the opportunity to launch into new things that were beyond what I could have anticipated before these transition periods. Oh, that's so true. And, you know, even just lunchtime on the farm, here at the farm, you know, we get to slow down a little bit and cook a nice healthy lunch, just go right outside and harvest and prepare a nice lunch or brunch with our eggs from our chickens and microgreens that we may be growing in our windowsill or sprouts and then, you know, step outside to get the berries and the roots and the uh, leaf vegetables that are growing right outside of our front door. So it's a really exciting man you're you're totally living the dream there and you mentioned something earlier like how you didn't always produce all of the things for your entire diet especially some of the indulgences like coffee and chocolate well i happen to be passing through and profiling um, a family that is doing a reforestation effort here in veracruz in mexico and the main thing that they do for income right now is actually buying from local producers in the area, which includes organic cacao, organic uh, coffee, and organic uh, pasture-raised milk. And they turn it into uh, chocolate, vegan chocolate. Um, they, they process and roast their own coffee, and they make their own ice cream from the cream of the milk and the goats, and like five different types of cheeses from soft cheese to hard cheese and 
I can't tell you how good it is. I'm, I'm in the process of making videos about it right now. So I'll definitely keep you posted when I've got those to release. Oh, please do. Maybe we can uh, mail each other some goodies. <laughs> <laughs> or even better, next time you get a chance to vacation, come down and see the reforestation efforts and then just like buy the good stuff in bulk. Oh, that sounds like a dream. Uh, speaking of chocolate, one of my first experiences with permaculture was at Punta Mona in Costa Rica, Stephen Brooks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he's, he, he has 80 acres off the grid. I'm sure he has more land by now there, but he started this amazing food forest and he's uh, brought, on, brought in so many wonderful groups uh, and also teaches permaculture design courses. And uh, one of the components uh, through my time there was he took us on a visit to the Bribri tribe and we, we got to witness the process of making chocolate from the seed uh, all the way through the entire process. And that was so magical. I can't, I can't even imagine what you're experiencing right now. It's profound. Yeah, I mean, it's the the benefit of being in this transition period and having a big network of permaculture and sustainable projects and regenerative uh, enterprises. So I'm trying to make use of it as I make my way back to the States to visit family. But here, let's, um, let's switch gears again just for a second. And tell me a little bit about, like, I know what your opinion is going to be on this because of what you've talked about already, but you have experience both from commercial farms with like deadlines and customers to please and now this new freedom in your own garden to try out different things and so my question is do you find that having a large variety of crops including flowers medicinals and others is worth the loss in efficiency obviously in your context just producing for yourself it makes sense but would you have been able to integrate that into kind of a, a more rigid business sort of context? Sure. So I think uh, diversifying the income stream is really important, especially for people who are just starting out. And that's something that we've been doing uh, for over a decade as really, uh, you know, we would show up to some of the early on farmers markets with all kinds of things from vegetables to baked goods to art to fabric um, aprons to <laughs> all kinds of different things. Uh, so we've always had that mentality of diversifying the income stream. And for us, it's exciting and fresh and you don't have to focus on one thing over and over. And so for us, it works. And, uh, you know, when we harvest for farmers markets, it's exciting. And, you know, we go from maybe 20 pounds of salad mix to, you know, two bucketfuls of sugar snap peas, and then we make edible flower bouquets or, you know, harvest some medicinal bouquets or, um, you know, then go over to the uh, chamomile patch and gather a bunch of chamomile flowers to make tea, you know, so we, we love it. I think the polyculture is really important, not only for human health, but environmental health. I think that, you know, the more and more we get out of the monoculture mentality and into polycultures, uh, the more abundance there'll be. And yes, while it does minimize some efficiencies, it maximizes joy. So, <laughs> so I would That's say... That's a, a very significant <laughs> factor, not to be forgotten. Yeah. If you're not having fun with it, how long are you actually going to stick with the practice? And definitely working with living systems like this, it's an investment in in a much longer system, you know? A lot of us are used to you know, going to the grocery store, or even if, you know, there are sort of better practices going and getting things from a CSA, it doesn't require a huge time investment. And if you're going to go all the way to the point of producing your own food, it's worth making the process enjoyable. 
And on that note, if they're like for the people out there listening and aspiring to start growing their own food, what are some of the most important tools and resources that you would recommend that they invest in first? Sure. So I would say uh, start with soil uh, here in St. Louis or, you know, we're about 45 minutes to an hour from St. Louis. And there's a company called St. Louis Compost where you can get a truckload of fresh new compost. It's half compost, half topsoil blends, certified weed free. So there's no weed seedlings that could germinate. Um, and just get new soil brought in. You can get a truckload for about $35 or you can get it delivered by the cubic square foot for uh, a, a higher rate, of course, but I think it's well worth it. And then in terms of tools, having a broad fork is a really good idea um, or a digging fork just to loosen up the soil. Having a hard rake and a hula hoe are some tools that we use on a regular basis and then a nice hand trowel to do hand transplanting. Um, and then in just investing in some seed flats or building your own with wood, just wooden boxes fill with uh, garden soil, or not garden soil, but a potting soil mix. So uh, the downfall of the St. Louis compost is that they don't have a germination mix, so we have to buy that elsewhere. Um, but it really is important if you're starting your own seeds to get a really nice quality germination mix. And uh, we've had the most luck with Vermont compost, um, but again, that that's a hefty price and you um, have to pay for shipping and it's coming all the way for Vermont. So lately we've been uh, been just getting bags at a time of organic potting soil from the local farm and feed store, um, which someday we'd like to create our own germination mix. So I would say uh, focus on soil, um, get good quality seeds from a nice uh, supplier like Baker Creek or Southern Seed Exposure, um, seeds of change, strictly medicinals. We grow, go through a lot of Johnny's seeds and um, we also do a lot of saving of our own seeds. So I would focus highly on saving your own seeds. Um, it's really important. One of my heroes is Vandana Shiva, and she focuses a lot on seed sovereignty. Yeah, I agree. S saving seeds is one of those key things, not only to cutting down the cost, because if you are getting heirloom and organic seeds, they can get expensive, but also because if you start to cultivate the practice over time, you're going to slowly sort of alter the genetics of the plants that you're growing to become more stable and grow better in the context in which you're growing them, they'll become easier and more pest resistant over time. Definitely. And it's such a fun process, especially to do with children. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, before I let you go, could you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you, find some of your other resources and books, and leave them with sort of a message of where they can find uh, or get involved with what you're doing. Sure. So our business is called Flourish and you can find us um, at growcreateinspire.com. And we're also on social media at Grow Create Inspire. We're not yet uh, able to transition to the Flourish social media yet uh, because all of our content is still on the Grow Create Inspire site. Uh, but Instagram at Grow Create Inspire. The books are titled Grow, Create, Inspire, Worms at Work, and soon to be released uh, in January of 2020 is Your Edible Yard, and they're all published by New Society Publishers, which prints on 100% post-consumer waste, so that's a really wonderful um, publisher that does 
amazing ecological work. And uh, you can find some of our permaculture design courses on growcreateinspire.com. I also post a lot of things to the Grow, Create, Inspire Facebook page, as well as gardening tips, weekly recipes. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I've contributed to uh, publications such as Permaculture Magazine, Taproot Magazine. I speak at all of the Mother Earth News uh, conferences, um, maybe not all of them, but several throughout the year. Uh, this weekend, I'm gearing up to be a presenter at the Midwest Women's Herbal Conference. And then also, I'm one of the co-teachers on the Permaculture Women's Guild um, through that permaculture organization. So kind of all over the place and just really excited to be a part of your podcast. I'm absolute fan of your work, so I really appreciate this opportunity. Well, thanks so much, Krista. I appreciate that. And for those of you listening, if this woman with all the things that she's doing and how incredibly productive and prolific in creation she is can still manage to grow her own food you should definitely be able to do it too so i really recommend and i'll put all the links to your books and and to all of those ways of getting in touch with you to the show notes on this podcast and crystal it was an absolute pleasure connecting with you i hope we can stay in touch and maybe do a follow-up again in the future oh that sounds lovely and if you're ever in the midwest just you're welcome anytime Oh, man, I will definitely grab that opportunity if, if I can find my way over to that area. Well, thanks again for taking the time, and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at abundantedge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.